0: Listening to First Church, Charlotte. You know a Christmas song I can sing while everyone's getting sorted out? What's your favorite Christmas song to play? I'll sing for their listening pleasure. Silent night, silent night. Somebody help me! Holy night. This is the high part. Oh. He likes to make me suffer. All is pride. There was a move of the spirit and I don't know what happened. Young <laughs> mother and child. Come on, it's holidays. Get your holiday spirit out. Holy infant so tender and tender. Screw man has nothing on me. What are you talking about? Mm-hmm. Heavenly peace. I love Christmas. <laughs> I love Christmas. All right. I'm talking about things I learned from Christmas tonight, and I intend to go for a very long time. I have been stuck in my house for too long, and the word just kept building up on the inside. And I have so much to share with you that you might as well settle in for a long winter's nap, uh, because we're going to be we're going to be here until my back gives out. So I'll be done in about seven minutes, just so you know. <clears throat> I love all you folks. I love you. I love you. I love you. I'm not just saying that. I look around and I'm overwhelmed at the beautiful. People of God, and uh, the beautiful gathering that we have of people who love the Lord—not perfect people. None of us here are perfect, uh, but people who love the Lord. And uh, it's a joy to be joined together with you, knit together with you into a body of Christ. So I want to say thank you for your prayers. I want to say thank you to my 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 team for uh, putting up with my absence. They were thrilled to high heaven, but uh, even so, they did. I want to say thank you to my dad for me and. Johnny on the spot for anything I need. And so let's talk about the things we learn from Christmas. All right. Somebody say, Lord, help the preacher. Thank you. I'll take that help. So uh, the Christmas story is a subject that is revisited by every preacher, every Bible teacher, um, every devotion giver, at least once a year. Christmas is the along with Easter, is the two great events in our calendar whereby we Christians understand that fundamentally these are the reason why we can exist as a faith community. Without a birth, Of one who can wash our sins away. And without the death, burial, and resurrection of that perfect Lamb of God, we have no why in our community of faith. There is no foundation. You see, none of our efforts to fix the sin problem were working, (laughs) they all had failed. And so Jesus Christ came to do what we could not do. And you guys know this. It is our reason why. Somebody say yes real loud. And so we talk about Christmas. But truthfully, we all know how easy it is to refer to Christmas in a trite way or to refer to the Christmas story in a sentimental way, or to allow this holiday season to be about our families' uh, get-togethers, our work parties, our uh, you know shopping season, et cetera, et cetera, and fundamentally forget the theology, the theology of Christmas. There is a deep and profound theology that underlays all of the fun Christmas carols and underlays underlays all of the holiday parties. There is a deep, profound theology. And that theology is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, uh, Paul tells us exactly Uh, How He refers to the gospel. The gospel is not a complete systematic theology that would be developed and given to us through the apostles, through the church fathers. Uh, That is a systematic theology whereby the church is established and founded. The gospel is much simpler than that. The gospel is not even a a theological argument. The gospel is simply good news. It is simply the announcement that God is going to make a way of escape for anyone who will call upon him and receive his work of grace in their life. The gospel literally is the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so underlying our holiday season is the gospel of Jesus Christ, as you know. And so when we revisit this story, and I I uh, try not to make the The preaching of holiday themes, uh, you know, something that we do the whole month of December. I try to save it for that holiday week, Uh, but I I want you to see in remembrance, I want you to see uh, some of the lessons that are in the Christmas story. Uh, I want to talk about some of the things that happened around about the man Christ Jesus. I'm going to preach about that on Sunday and tonight i want to talk about a little bit of the lessons that are in the story that are placed around the story that we can we can grow and learn from and the first lesson i want you to see is the fact that what god is about to do is introduced and shown and revealed to people who seemingly uh, have nothing to add to it and they have no notable part of it from the standpoint of status or place. I want you to see uh, that in the Hebrew culture, this is important, I I believe it's important to me, uh, in the Hebrew culture, because the Jews were under the oppression of the Roman Empire, there was very few ways for you to have status in your community through politics. Rome-controlled politics. Because there was no Jewish army, there was an army of rebellion that we think of as the zealots, there was no way to achieve status in your community through uh, military. Uh, because they were so heavily oppressed and taxed, there was an upper limit placed on how successful any of them could become in business. Roman Empire watched the power circles of its people's and very much would choose who could have success it was not a free market economy there was very little opportunity for you to have status in your community through politics status in your community through military or say political uh, or law enforcement there was very little opportunity for you to have status in your community I can't be falling down now um, so uh, now that I've given myself a shot of adrenaline that is not to be underestimated um, uh, I want you to see that if uh, there's almost no path for status in the Jewish religion except through religion. There's no path for status among the Jews through politics, there's no path through military, there's no path through business, there's only one path to status and that is through religion. Think about that. And so the best of the t- the best of the each generation would fanatically study the law. Read your Jewish history. The, the, The brightest minds became religious lawyers, not secular lawyers. They could not go into politics. They could not go into military. They could not really have any prospect of business. The only path of status. Now everybody wants to be successful in their society. Yes? We all want that. The only path is through religion. And so the smartest the most talented, the most able of every generation, particularly from the time of the oppression going forward where the Jews did not control their own politics. The only path to status was through religion. And so you have the best... The brightest, the most talented, the most, um, the best memories, the most creative minds. The top tier of every generation is going into religion. As a career path, it's the only way. If they are a, uh, uh, of the uh, house of, um, the, of Levi, they have a path open to them through priesthood. If they are not of that, the only path they have is through law, religious law. And so it would not be uncommon. And it is true even today that in Jewish history, the most influential men of renown are religious lawyers. Now imagine a people where the only way to status was through religion. The only way to get elevated in your society was to know more of the law than the other people in your class. Think about it. The only way for you to receive acclimates... There's no path in politics. There's no path in religion. There's no path in, in business. There's only one path, and it's religion. And the best and the brightest spend their life studying it. And then, when the promise is given, not one of those who had spent their life studying was able to see what God was doing. Now, that, if you think about these things, is astonishing. They had studied. They had elevated themselves. They had attained all of the highest standards of religious law. They had, they had priesthood. They had scribes, The best of the brightest. And not one of them could see what God was doing. And the lesson is this. God often starts his greatest works in a manner and in a place. Where the people who should know what God is doing... Cannot see the hand of God working. It's not just the story of Jesus. It's over and over in the scripture. God likes to start with the lowly, the meek, and the individual who, in many cases, feels like they are the least prepared. God will say, I choose you. And you see this happening over and over in the scripture. God's greatest works start in humble places. God's most magnificent accomplishments don't begin where you think they should. They start where God decides they will. And so although everyone in the story is so poor that they have really, uh, they, they're, they're blue collar at best by any ranking of the society. That's where God chose to start a work of of grace. Although everyone in the story has no religious standing whatsoever. Not one of them is a highly ranked priest. Even Zacharias. uh, His involvement in the story is one of getting it wrong and having God rebuke him and judge him until he gets the name of the son right? Uh, I won't get into that side story but it's a beautiful story. It is astonishing that we in all of our efforts can miss I I was having a conversation today and this came to me. And I, 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 some of the most dangerous people in the work of God are people who lack self-doubt. It's not that they have doubt in God. They have faith in God. But they, don't, they have a little bit of doubt in themselves. People who have no self-doubt are often very dangerous because our faith is not in what we can figure out our faith is in what God said he's going to do and a little bit of self doubt will give us humility rather than vanity am I preaching to anybody here tonight a little bit of humility a little bit of saying I don't know enough to comment on this situation a little bit of saying I don't have to have an opinion about this a little bit of saying let me humble myself a little bit of saying let another praise me and not my own lips it makes you safe to be placed with others. But the moment your faith in you is as great as your faith in God, you're going to mix what you want up with what God wants. You're going to mix what you think up with what God thinks. God's great work starts with humble people. Not one of them has has excelled in Mosaic law, but God chooses them. Not one of them has status among the tribe of Israel, but God chooses them. God does great work starting in small places. That should give all of us hope here today. Because most of us don't think that we're much of anything. Most of us are quick to find our flaws. And quick to see our weaknesses. But I want you to know. That doesn't mean that God's not coming to your house. Zacchaeus. (laughs) Though you be the shortest of us all. That doesn't mean God is not coming. It's not coming to your house. God loves to find the weak. The lowly. And starting from there. He does great and mighty things. The second lesson that I learned from the the Christmas story is is simply this. Not one of the people that God interrupted with the announcement was uh, uh, on vacation or sitting around with time on their hands. Uh, They all were working. What if the shepherds had decided to take a night off? Well, they couldn't take a night off. Why? Well, they uh, had sheep, and sheep don't allow nights off. If you want a night off, you have to arrange someone else to take care of the sheep, uh, because you have a responsibility that's not on a clock it is uh, It is what it is, and so the shepherds uh, they they are working, and so it is that uh, it's not in a uh, in the place where there's a lot of time given to somebody and they're sitting around and they're they're in their ivory tower of spiritual retreat uh, it's not there. It is in the busyness of their, of their life. It's not just the Christmas story. Uh, Elisha is plowing when God calls him to prophecy. Matthew is working at his tax desk when God calls him. James and John were mending nets when God called them. Gideon is at work at his threshing floor. Saul is hunting for lost donkeys. And the prodigal came to himself while he's working. Uh, I want you to open your heart to God even in the busyness of your life. We must set aside time, but that's not so God can speak to us. It's so we can keep our heart ordered and our spirit right and our prayer where it needs to be. God seems to get more done with busy people than he does with people who have nothing to do and nowhere to go and no one to see when they get where they're going. God loves to find busy people. We have a saying we say one to another. If You want to get something done? Find somebody busy and have them schedule it because then it's going to get done. They are a productive person. But the person who they just kind of chilling, it may or may not ever get done. It may or may not even be remembered. Uh, God speaks to people while they are working. It's not the lazy that God calls. It's not the person neglecting their duties that God calls. Uh, it's the shepherd who is fulfilling their duties while announcement comes to them. And then the angel has an announcement to uh, them. And so the angel says, uh, This great report, this good news unto you is born this day in the city of David, a savior. God works through busy people. Amen. Amen. If I asked people in the church to do something when they had time, uh, that's not how anything would get done. Uh, people make time. Can I have a big amen? amen. Uh, it's not about having time, it's about Making time. But making time becomes a form of worship in our lives. Alleluia. Alleluia. Let me, real quick, take a 30-second interlude for uh, the shortest marriage seminar that you've ever seen. <laughs> One of the ways you tell someone you love them is to make time for them. You make time. Can I have an amen from all the husbands? Right. Can I have an amen from all the wives? Amen. Yes. You make time. Sometimes the most effective way to say I value you. I love you. I want to stay close with you. Is for you to make an absolute effort and let it be seen this is not about simply togetherness togetherness can be its own comfort and we're thankful for that and if you're in a if you're in a a good relationship you understand the value of togetherness and comfort where you don't have to be talking but if you want to impress somebody make some time and actively listen ...to what they're living through, what they're going through, what they are praying through. Some of us pray through some things, you know what I'm saying? And that in its own way becomes a way of saying, I love you. So it is with God. You make time in your life. You don't wait till you have time. You make time in your life. And sometimes that says, I love you, in a way that's much deeper and much more uh, real... ...than simply the words that you would mutter guiltily as you rush on with your day... Uh, We should not use busyness as a reason why we can't be spiritual. Spirituality resides. I learned that God speaks and calls busy people. I learned that uh, there is a necessary element of sacrifice if anyone wants to change the world at all. And this principle is so true that God himself did not try to slip by. Without self sacrifice. You see, we all say we want to. Uh, change others, and we usually do that by first changing ourselves. Uh, We often say we want to help others, and we often do that by uh, first getting ourselves sorted out, getting ourselves organized, getting our own finances in uh, proper condition. And then we find the ability to help uh, someone else. Uh, But it is in this moment of the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ, when you come upon this realization, you come upon this realization If there was anyone who wanted to try to do it the easy way, it would have been God. Because after all, he was the one who knew how it all went together. Does that make sense? If there was anyone who wanted to try to find a shortcut, it was God. Because he was the one, after all, who had spoke it all into being. I'm all about, true confession, I'm all about finding shortcuts in my life. I love to find a way to get Pass, go, and collect my $200 and not land on Broadway Street where there's multiple hotels and I have to pay a large fee. I want to skip right over that part. I will apply whatever intelligence I have as actively as and as intentionally as possible to finding a shortcut. Uh, but there's some things that will never go on sale. There's some things that will never go on sale. You're never going to get a deal. You're going to have to pay. And so it is that when God himself wanted to save the world, he shows us that it is done through self-sacrifice. This is a spiritual lesson because almost all of you here tonight in some way are involved in volunteering to help others. Whether you work in a ministry, whether you volunteer of your time, in some way, this Wednesday night Bible study crowd that we have gathered here, in some way, you are involved in the work. You are not simply a recipient of the work. You are an active participant of the work. And if you are not involved, if there is not somewhere where you are enabled to be a active participant, I want you to know that you're missing the greatest blessing that is involved in being a part of a faith community. Because did not the Lord himself say it is more blessed to give? Than it is to receive. Everyone raises their hand when we say who wants to be blessed. I certainly want to be blessed. I want to be blessed as soon as possible and as often as possible. But there's something better than blessing. It's being a blessing. It's something better than receiving a gift. It is being that gift. And so the work of Christianity progresses directly in relation to how much we sacrifice self for others. You can do a long, and I've, I've, done, uh, I've done some of it. You can do a quite detailed look of church history. And you can go century by century. There's actually a, a great website that gives you church history by century. And you can click 1st century, 2nd century, 3rd century, 4th century. And you can see in each century how the church... Whether or not it was the real authentic, or whether or not it had elements of the authentic, I tend to think that uh, the church always has elements of the sincere and elements of the insincere all happening at the same time. And I think that is true in the individual believer's life too. That's why it's sometimes dangerous to read the, the, the Bible stories and say, Oh, I'm this person in the story, but not this person in the story. You are both people it's just when we catch you. You should humble yourself and realize you have a little bit of Judas in you. And you ought to find an altar and say, purge me, O oh Lord. Wash me. Don't look around the church and try to find you, you Judas. Just invest in a really good mirror. Buy you some Windex. Polish it up to a fine gleam. And go look in that mirror. You want to find Judas? He's in that mirror. Don't look around the church and try to find Peter. Peter's in the church. Look in the mirror. Because you have the same capacity in your way to be rash. And rather than wasting your comparative time looking around trying to judge others, look in the mirror and say, where is Peter at in me? Peter has great things about him. He has things about him that's not so laudable. But we are all of us are in the story. We are all of us, both the woman caught in adultery and the Pharisee who looked at the, at the tax collector and said, Thank God I'm not like him. If you are a person who comes from a story of great sin, don't automatically assume you're of the, 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 you know, the woman uh, at the well. Uh, Or you're the caught in adultery. Or uh, the man who was with the woman who was caught in adultery. (laughs) Takes two, honey. It takes two. That's your theological thought for the evening. You don't just try to find yourself. We also can be the Pharisee who wants to shut others away from God. We all of us humble ourselves in the Word of God and we try to learn from it. But if you go century by century, uh, musicians, you can come. I'm, I'm going to wind up pretty quick here. If you go century by century, you can look at what's happening in the church historically and you can see how the church is trying to change the world. Because there is no century where the church, the thing that changes is how they're trying to change the world. I have a pastor friend I talked to uh, yesterday, and he had a man in his church of a particular uh, stout personality and is greatly inclined toward the ministry of rebuke. And uh, he had heard about a conference that was happening that was, by his perception... A gathering of like minds. (laughs) And they had decided that they had, you know, they had that ministry of the Old Testament prophet. And their job was to go around and rebuke. And so he had gone to this conference. And so my pastor friend was telling me about the conversation he had with this man in his church afterward. And uh, the man had gone there. And they got to talking about something that had happened in a city. And uh, this time where there'd been a lot of miracles and everything. And. The man had kind of had his eyes open that maybe he didn't belong in, in this gathering because someone had told him all of those miracles were not of God because the people who claimed to receive the miracles were Trinitarians. And God would never do a miracle for a Trinitarian. Honey, got to do a miracle for a drunk if they 've got faith you know, what, you know what I thought? I said, boy they, they just got caught God pinned down like a like a bug under a needle i mean god can 't hardly do anything without getting their permission. Let me tell you something: God will do what God decides to do i 've seen people come to church one time, their life a mess, and God give them a miracle in an altar and i 've seen people who are great men and women of faith die of a disease. We serve God, honey god doesn 't serve us and though he slay me so I'm almost done then I'm going to take some pain pills and start saying a lot of crazy stuff and you're going to miss out on that it's going to be awesome <laughs> if you go century by century you will see a church in every century trying to change its world The difference is how they are trying to change the world. You will see centuries where the church decided the way to change the world was by making Christianity the government and requiring everyone to do it. And you would think that will work because after all, power is the final arbiter. But you will see historically, it's not the world that has changed. Power doesn't change the world, but power does corrupt the church. Oh, I don't have time to preach that, but that's some good stuff right there. If you give me a pain pill, I'll just preach a little bit more on that subject. <laughs> you will see centuries where the church tries to change the world through fear and even horror. You will see people be so afraid that the truth will be damaged that they form an inquisition and they put people to the torch trying to keep doctrine pure. That's the ultimate act of fear. When you, The more afraid you are, the more apt you are to hurt other people. When a bear mauls you, it's because it's scared. You most likely got near its cubs. And it's not trying to hurt you in some theoretical sense it's scared when a snake bites you it's because it's scared very few animals hunt you because they're hungry but a lot of animals can hurt you because they're scared us people are just like that we are most dangerous when we are hurt when we are fearful and some of the most dangerous good people I've ever seen in my life who were people who were filled with a deep fear And there's nothing more cruel than a righteous person. Sure that they're right and filled with fear. You see, perfect love casts out fear. And you'll see the church use the Inquisition to try to change the world. You'll see the church try to use all of these things to change the world. But the only thing that ever worked is the example of Jesus Christ where he said look if you want to you know you say you want to follow after me but here's the deal there's this there's this necessary uh, way of walking there's this necessary style Your Christianity should have a feel to it. It should have a sound to it. It should have a style to it. And this should be the style. You prefer others over you. And you would rather wound yourself than see others hurt. And you carry the price of their sins. And you die for them. But... If you die, if that grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it bringeth forth a harvest that is by this great multiple. It is this great multiple of harvest. If the church wants to change the world, we should humble ourselves. We should let love be The dominant emotion, not fear, but love. And we should open ourselves to others who may or may not ever understand. They may or may not ever. Except they may or may not ever be changed. But the power of the self-sacrificing Christian is this: even if they kill you, your testimony changes the world. Because for 300 years, the world tried killing Christianity until a day when Christianity changed. The story. And although the story of the church is oftentimes just co- as convoluted as the story of the flesh and the story of sin, in spite of all of that, through the church comes the body of Christ here on earth. There is no better opportunity for you to show love to your community than through a church. And there's no better opportunity for you to be a strength to other people except through the church. And so when I look at Calvary, I see that even God, when he wanted to change the world, did it by saying, not my will thy will the flesh the deified flesh Jesus before the immutable unknowable majesty of the creator not my will but thy will be done and so he died the just for the unjust that he might bring us to God and so when I say to you uh, happy Christmas Merry Christmas joyful Christmas joy to the world glorious glorious When I sing my Christmas song, I'm really telling you the gospel, and that is this. There's hope for the world. There's something to be joyful about, and I'm so thankful that I'm a part in my very small way of his Christmas story. Let's all stand. Lord Jesus, I thank you for your good people. I thank you for their good hearts. Lord Jesus, I want to thank you for the work you're allowing us to do. I want to thank you for the doors you're allowing us as a church to enter through. Lord, we've got lots to learn, and we have a long way to go before we sleep. But Lord Jesus, if you will guide us, we will seek to be your hands and your feet here on earth, and we'll try through the spending of our lives to make a difference just as you showed us the example of you spending your life that you might save us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, let's praise him before we go here tonight. Lord Jesus, we thank you. We bless your name. Thank you for listening to First Church Charlotte. If you're in the Charlotte, North Carolina area, worship with us at 4929 North Sharon Amity Road. For information about service times, church ministries, and so much more, visit us online at firstchurchclt.com. If you would like to support our efforts, text GIVE to 704-445-5353. We pray God's richest blessings to you. Come worship with us.